Good morning, Hillcrest. Somebody said fast change. <laughs> Praise God. I'm so grateful to be with you in the Lord's house on the Lord's day with you, the Lord's people. What a privilege it is. Uh, something I don't ever take for granted. Thankful that you are here today. Thankful for those who are joining us online. Special shout out to our members at Spanish Trail. We're so glad to be able to worship together. Um, using technology. And today we're going to um, conclude a series of messages that Pastor Jim started a few weeks back from a portion of Paul's 12th chapter to Romans on the subject of world changers. We looked, as Pastor Jim started off, on love and the importance of love, how we cannot change the world without love. And then our uh, brother, Pastor Brian Davis, led us uh, in a message on enthusiasm and zeal and how we have, ought to be excited about the things of God as we're seeking to change the world. And last week, Pastor Dustin Scott showed us that humility is an incredible and a very important ingredient in world-changing character. And today, I'd like to conclude this study in Romans 12 by looking at world-changing forgiveness. World-changing forgiveness. Uh, a subtitle might be to this sermon, What Does a Christian Do with Their Enemies? And so we'll look at what the Word of God has to say regarding that today. I'd like to read the text and then pray for us and then see what God's uh, Word says for us today. And if you wouldn't mind, Standing in honor of God's word with me today as we read it. It'll be on the screens. It's Romans chapter 12, verses 14, and then 17 through 21. This is the perfect word of our perfect God. Please give your attention to it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we love you so much. What a privilege it is to worship you, not just individually, Lord, but corporately. Worship you together in your house today. And now, Lord, as we open your word, I ask that you open our hearts that we would be shaped by your word. I pray that your spirit would so fill us that we're changed by what your word says. Lord, may I decrease that you increase, and may we all leave here knowing that we've been in the presence of our great God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. One of my greatest privileges is to be a dad. Uh, Crystal and I have two kids, Xavier and Abigail, and, you know, I may be biased. 
I probably am. But I think those two little kids are just awesome. They attempt awesome things, and often they accomplish awesome things. Uh, But sometimes they attempt something that's very difficult, and they come to us and they say, this is very difficult. Mom, Dad, this is hard. And a few years back, Crystal coined this phrase that we use around our house all the time. Whenever they say that, this is hard, hard. We say it is hard, but you can do hard things. And we say that to encourage them to inspire confidence in them. And I think it's a good thing to do. And as I was reading this text, the one we just read in preparation for today, I read it again and again, and it seemed to be harder and harder every time I read it. And I got down on my knees and I prayed to the Father, Father, this is hard. And it was as though he said to me, yes, son, it is, but you can do Hard things. This is a hard text, Hillcrest. There are many hard texts in the Bible. Some of them are hard because we don't understand what they mean. This is what Peter said in his second epistle. Man, some of the things that Paul writes, they're hard to understand. And so there are some passages of Scripture that are hard because we don't understand what they mean. That's not this text. This is hard for an entirely different reason. It's hard because we do know what it means. Nobody here has any confusion about the phrase, repay no one evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, your enemy, feed him? We know what that means. No, it's hard because our flesh resists doing that. We don't want to do that. We want to do other things. And so we come to a text like this, and perhaps our temptation is to explain it and to see what what it really means. And I think today we know what it means. And so I'd like to, rather than focus on the meaning of the text, I'd like to focus on the why and the how. Not the what as much. I think we're clear on the what. But, But why do we obey this text? And how can we obey this text? Or what I will call motives for obedience, the why, and methods of obedience, the how. Paul is giving us a coin, as it were, with two sides when he explains this text to us. He, he, he gives us a coin with two sides, and on one side it says very clearly, do not do this. Negatively, don't do this. Instead, do this other thing here. It's very similar to what he does in his other epistles when he says, put off this and put on that. And to give a simple explanation of what Paul is saying here in these verses, he's saying do not retaliate against those who mistreat you. We'll call those enemies. Don't retaliate. Don't seek revenge. Don't seek to get even with them. And on the other side of the coin, do positively do good to them. Bless them. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you, as Jesus himself said. So that's that's a simple explanation of the text. And he summarizes it very nicely. I can't give a better summary than he does in verse 21. Look at it with me. He says, do not be overcome by evil. That's the negative. Do not. Do not be overcome by evil. But positively, overcome evil 
with good. And so to that end, we will focus on the why and the how with three motives for obedience. Why do we do this text? And three methods of obedience. How do we do this text? Motive number one, because God has transformed you. Look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, backing up to the beginning of this chapter. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul here appeals to us, not by our will. He doesn't say, obey God by that strong willpower that you have. He makes his appeal, not based on our frailty and weakness, but based on God's strength, based on his mercies. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. What mercies? All the mercies that Paul has been detailing from chapters 1 all the way through the end of chapter 11. On the basis of those mercies, gospel mercies, that you have been justified by faith alone. Not by deeds of the law, but by a free gift. All your sins have been washed away. Paul says, based on those mercies, live in a manner that's consistent with your new nature. Be different. Live different. This idea of transformation. He says, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed. That word being metamorpho, from which we get our English word metamorphosis. You know what metamorphosis is, right? Third grade science class. You see the little fuzzy caterpillar crawling on the ground, slow, ugly, no one paints caterpillars on their walls, <laughs> eats leaves, and not very attractive, right? Until one day, we all know this, it starts to hang from a tree and builds this cocoon around itself. And by God's design, after some time, that furry, hairy, worm-like creature emerges something totally different. To our eyesight. It's a butterfly and it flies through the air and it's colorful and people do paint butterflies on their wall from time to time. They, they like to celebrate that transformation. That's the word Paul uses there. And this is why he says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, look, all things have become new. And this is why, if that has happened to you, if you have received Christ by faith, you sing along with me as my brother or sister in Christ. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We're talking about motives for obedience. God has transformed you. And not only has he transformed you, number two, motive two, God loves you. Look at verse 19 of Romans chapter 12. 
One word. We'll build a whole point on one word. What's the first word of verse 19? Beloved. Beloved. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. I'd like to just camp out on the love of God for just a minute. Especially the love of God for sinners. I like to read, study. I'm a bookish guy. Some people like to go fishing or hunting and working on the truck or whatever. I like to just curl up with a book and read. That's my style. And I've read a lot of things, but I tell you, in all the theology and all the truth and all the things that I've ever studied, the deepest theology, you know what it is in a sentence? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And we like to study deep things and get into deep theology. Even Pastor Jim recently taught us, and I'm so glad he did, on eschatology and what will happen in the end times. But man, when Jesus comes back, I think you'll pretty much know everything you need to know about the end times. We'll spend the rest of eternity celebrating the love of God in Christ Jesus for sinners. Marveling at it. Perplexed by it. Why would God love sinners like you and I? This is what Paul says elsewhere in the gospel uh, in Romans chapter 5, excuse me, we'll turn to it and look at a few verses that he says here. Beginning at verse 6 of Romans chapter 5, he says, For while we were still weak, we were still weak at the right time. Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest demonstration of love in world history is Jesus Christ dying in the place of sinners. He died for sinners, not for friends. Although Jesus himself says in John 15, 13, there is no greater love than for one to lay down his life for his friends. We are friends by grace. But we're sinners by nature, aren't we? We're enemies. This is Paul's point here. He says, while we were enemies, look at verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now, that we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? My, my point here, this is motivation. This is why should you not retaliate against your enemies? Look at the example of God. He loves his enemies. He does good to those who hate him. He blesses those who curse him. And those people would be us. Before we were converted, we were the enemies of God. And yet by his grace, by his amazing love, we sit here now redeemed, friends of God, even more than that, sons and daughters of God most high. God loves you. And Lord, help us. Help us to love our enemies in the same way that you love our enemies. We pray that we would have the heart of God towards our enemies in the same way that God had a heart towards us when we were his enemies. And so we 
We obey this text because God has transformed us. We obey this text because God loves us. And then finally, we obey because God avenges us. God avenges you. Look at verse 19 again of Romans chapter 12. The text says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God is a God of grace and mercy and love, as I've been describing. But at the same time, the Bible says our God is a consuming fire. He's also a God of justice and wrath. Our God is a holy God. He doesn't tolerate sin, not a single one. And there is not a single solitary sin that will ever go unpunished by God. And I mean completely punished. For those who refuse to repent, God will judge in hell forever. He will pour out his wrath on those who refuse to repent. But for those who do repent, praise God, that sin was judged on the cross of Jesus. And his wrath rested upon the head of Christ as a substitute for us. So, whether in hell forever for those who will not repent or on the cross of Christ for those who do, God judges sin to the full. And if we ever seek vengeance, we're saying that that justice is not satisfactory. It's not enough that God judges in hell or he judged on the cross. That's what we're saying by our actions when we seek revenge, as though God will not avenge us, when he says that he will. But there may be some here who think, what about now? What about today? What about this life? Yes, we know God will judge in eternity, but must my enemy gloat over me forever? Will there be no recompense for those who are sinners? Uh, look with me at Romans chapter 13, just a few verses after Paul writes these words, never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. Paul writes these words here in verses 3 and 4 of Romans 13. He says, for rulers... Speaking of governing authorities, they're not a terror to good, but uh, not to um, good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. You will receive his approval. Look at verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God. Look at the words. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Anybody know police officers, judges, people in governing authorities? They're the real Avengers. Anybody watch the movie Avengers? <laughs> They're the real Avengers. According to God's word. Those governing authorities, this is the point, those governing authorities are instruments. They're, they're attendants to God's justice in the world and in a civilized society like ours not perfect it wasn't perfect here in Rome but in a civilized society God has so ordered it that the governing authorities are an attendant to justice they're to punish the wrongdoer and to protect the good 
And so leave it to the wrath of God. He says give place to it. Let God exact vengeance on your enemies. And so if we look at Romans 19, 12, 19, and Romans 13, verse 4, side by side, it says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for the governing authority is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So whether in this life, with the proper governing authorities, God exacts his vengeance on the wrongdoer, or in time to come, which he certainly will, with eternal judgment upon those who refuse to repent or for those who do repent on the cross of Jesus Christ. He satisfied the justice of God. Either way, God will avenge you. This is what Jesus was thinking. Paul, uh, Peter teaches us this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, the Lord himself he leaves us an example. Look at verse 21 and following. For th to this you have been called. What? What is to this? This suffering. This suffering you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? This is what he did. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's Romans 12. That's leaving it to the wrath of God. That's never avenging yourself but giving place to the wrath of God. And so this is what we do. This is why we obey this text. Because God has transformed us. Because God loves us. And because he has promised to avenge us. But how? How do we do it? I'd like to leave with you three things, three ways that you can obey this text when it says overcome evil with good. Number one, pray for your enemies. Look at Romans 12, verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you Bless and do not curse them. We know that God possesses all blessings. They come from him. He dispenses them. And so to bless one's enemies is to call on God, to ask him to give favor to your enemies, to do good to them. Can I? We're reading the same text. When's the last time you've done that? When's the last time you prayed that God would bless someone who's mistreated you? Your enemy. Someone who hates you and they want to do as much harm to you as they can. When's the last time you prayed that God would bless them? I'll tell you when I have experienced that. You know my number one prayer for people like that? Lord, save them. We just celebrated life change today in the waters of baptism. The greatest good that God could do to an enemy of mine is to make him a believer, make him my brother and sister in Christ. Have you considered praying for your enemy that God would save them? 
that he would take their sins away, that he would transform them in the same way that he's transformed you. Pray for your enemies. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Hard words today. But we can do hard things. So we pray for our enemies. How else can we overcome evil with good? Look at uh, verse 18 as we consider that we are peaceable. Be peaceable with your enemies. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Uh, My father-in-law passed away earlier this year, but whenever he and I would talk, he would always say the same thing. A wise man should never argue with a fool because onlookers won't be able to tell the difference. That's good advice. That's a good word to apply to our lives. Live peaceably. Be peaceable with all. I'll tell you where we in my observation, can most apply this. Social media and our political perspectives. Listen, I have a social media account and I have a political persuasion. But if I have to violate this text in order to let people know how I feel, I'm not demonstrating Christ. I know you're right and the other person's wrong all the time. But if we're not peaceable, particularly in the climate that we're in right now, are we going to change the world? No. So my advice, stop arguing. Don't bicker. Leave it to God. When you are tempted to argue with someone, remember these words. I'll read verse 18 again. If possible. Sometimes it isn't, but often it is, isn't it? If possible, so far as it depends on you, man, live peaceably with all. And with respect to politics, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, did he not? They will be called the children of God. I'm not saying relinquish your positions, hold your convictions, but just don't be mad about it. Don't be disagreeable in your disagreeing because we would be violating this text. One of the marks of Christians ought to be winsome, a winsome spirit, a friendly spirit. We ought to delight in peace and harmony, not in arguments and division. And so be peaceful with your enemies. Pray for your enemies. And then finally, give to your enemies. Look at verse 20 with me. Paul says, there to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. I told you this was a hard text. But whenever we read a passage like this, We have 
a choice before us to be a thermometer, which shows you what the temperature is around it, right? Or a thermostat to set the temperature around it. That's what world-changing forgiveness is all about. Not adopting the world standard of hate those who hate you. And man, they come after you, you come right back at them. They're rude to you, you give it to them even harder. No. The Bible teaches us to respond to hatred with love. To set the temperature of our environment. By going the other way. You know, there was a story Jesus told of a man who was on his way to Jericho, probably on business. And he saw an enemy of his, someone who was different than he was. He was a Samaritan, but the man was a Jew. And the Bible says the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. If they saw one of the other down, they would probably kick him and keep on going. But not this Samaritan. He saw a man, half dead, taken of all his clothes, his, his, his possessions, and he stopped. It didn't matter the race of the man or the, his ethnicity or nationality. He was a man in need. And he, he stopped and he went to where the man was, the Bible says. And he bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. And he lifted him up and put him on his own animal and took him to a place of lodging. Paid for it all. He said to the innkeeper, if he, spend, if he requires any more money, please let me know. Charge it to my account. I can imagine the innkeeper looking at a Samaritan and a Jew and saying, what's this? That's world-changing forgiveness. That's love. That's giving to those who are your enemies. That's seeing someone in need and doing the right thing. That's world-changing forgiveness. This is what we are to be about. This is God's word. And let all who agree say amen.